Support for the show comes from Atlassian. With a new story about AI coming out seemingly every day, it can be hard to know what it all means for you and your job. Atlassian thinks there's a lot to be excited about in the AI-powered future. Even right now, Atlassian's AI-powered software can help you boost productivity by eliminating menial tasks, generating insights, and helping you find information about projects, policies, and processes. No matter if you're a team of two or two million, or if you're around the corner or on another continent, Atlassian software keeps everyone connected and moving together as one towards shared goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I am so clearly your side piece. Let let, let me get this. Seriously. On your other podcast, you bring on Bill Gates. What do we get? We get some like Joanna Bag of Donuts assistant commissioner that you kissed in college (laughs) on our podcast. That... You've got to start investing in this relationship. <laughs> you know Bill what? Gates, Bill Gates, <laughs> assistant commissioner of parks and services. No, you know, no. whatever. She might be the FCC chairman. Are you kidding? I I'm not talking. I don't want to attack her. I, I thought want she, Bill she's, Gates. she's huge, but let's yeah. be honest. She's not Bill Gates. <laughs> you didn't like Fran Lebowitz? I, I can bring her on. No, she can't. She yeah, can't exactly. Be. You bring Fran on the other thing. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, enough already. I am sick listen, of you just I, taking I me out every other Tuesday people, night. I heard some fame. Listen, first of all, let me just say, I'm back in the closet again. Uh, I'm in New York in Brooke Hammerling's closet uh, broadcasting, so I can't paint you visit Brooke. my son. Love Brooke. Love Brooke. We'll have her on the show again. Uh, I am visiting my son at NYU for the long weekend. We've had the best time. Our little family has had a lovely Valentine's Day here. So I sound a little like I'm in a closet. I'm back in a closet again. But let me just say, someone famous was mentioning you. Everybody made a big deal of it because I'm such a name dropper and actually know all the names but you hmm, were named by you you were named by two people tell explain the, for the people what happened with your book i am generally very in touch with anyone who says anything nice about me but i i don't know brian williams i don't i really don't know who you're talking no, about it was oprah was talking oprah. about they, they brought they picked up your book oh and they, james corden that's right james he brought corden. my book yeah he talked What's about my with book that? why what, what is with that How? Well, occasionally, I know this is a shocker, but occasionally I do something outside of this podcast that gets some positive No, but how did he get the book? I know that. My guess is he did. He bought it, Kara. Some people actually buy books. (laughs) Okay. And and believe it or not, occasionally someone actually reads my book. Not that you've ever read one of my books. As usual, you're triggered because you're a triggered kind of person. The fact of the matter is, I'm thrilled that he bought your book, and I just yeah. wanted to know how he got it, and that was great. That was just Amazon. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I know, but Amazon. I wouldn't go James Corden and post Corona. I just wouldn't. That would not be a com- combination. He is a very thoughtful guy. I've interviewed him. He's great. He's very yeah. funny. He's yeah. very funny. But I was sort of surprised it was him, but it was interesting. And then they talked about it. Oprah and him. It was a big deal. It was Oprah. a big deal. Oprah, Oprah, one of the Where'd most ins- one of the most inspiring women of the last century. I shouldn't Probably say that. One, of, podcasts, most, but one of the most inspiring people. I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> I can't believe 
You just said it. no, no. But we're gonna get we're gonna get the head of the Texas Health Commission to come talk about animal you rights. Know you know what? Despite all its issues, New York Times you say it and they show up. I'm sorry, it's just the way it works. Did no, it, I'm kidding. It, it, I, I did fine on Rico. It's Rico. so true. If I call Bill Gates' office, like yeah. they call security. They literally, they're like, uh, I and think they it's should. that crazy guy. And they should. They I should. think it's that crazy but guy. Let, let, speaking of crazy guys, Trump was acquitted. Uh, what does this say about the American brand going forward? Let's move along to other people besides ourselves. Um, who? What do you think? What do you think? It was, well, it, it was a lot uh, look, of Republicans. It was a lot of Republicans. Uh, I think if you go outside... Uh, so in America, it's 10 minutes in a 30-minute newscast. It's 10 minutes of... Uh, international and 20 minutes of domestic. Abroad, mm-hmm. it's 20 minutes of international and 10 minutes of domestic because they realize mm-hmm. they live in a world, not in a country. Right. But uh, most people still don't have time to track America with that great a detail. Every nation tracks America because they. Mm-hmm. I do think that we ha- hold a special position of influence. But I, I think it, if you really take the aperture back and you look at what's happened here, mm-hmm. I think that the American brand has... Uh, reinforced itself and has been buttressed, uh, rejuvenated a little bit. We still have a Ooh. long way to climb back, but the reality is we had a virus of narcissism, a lack of empathy, of uh, bigotry, misogyny, and general incompetence called the Trump administration. And I do believe that the immunities kicked in and he lost the election. That's the headline news. Mm-hmm. I think the impeachment reflects really poorly. I think the, the worst influence is on American youth, and that is Kids, if you're going to incite violence, just make sure you talk about it and record it, and then you can get off. Yeah. I just, I think this is a, and by the way, I'm more pissed off at the Democrats for not having the backbone to call witnesses. I think it was Mm -hmm. important that America got more detail on what exactly happened here. So internally, no doubt bad for the brand. Globally, the America brand is in a a period of, of overdue and welcome repair. Your thoughts? Hope. Yeah, I agree. I have to say, I think Biden's looking pretty good during this whole thing. I have, I met a friend today who was a big progressive uh, for lunch, and she's like, I am actually riding with Biden. I'm surprised how, you know, even though this Trump thing and people should still study it. And by the way, I think there should be a commission on what happened. So we have the information out there. I don't think the Trump ran it was good for it. it then look at Nikki Haley kind of said some really sharp things. Oh, McConnell God, in, voting against, in voting against Nikki the Haley. impeachment. I know. In voting against the impeachment. Mitch McConnell strafe Trump. I mean, there's a really interesting counter revolution going on among them. And even though you can say, "Ugh, they're all awful," it's it's still interesting. Like, how could they be with him and then against him and then with them and against him? And probably they'd be with him again if they need to be. But it was they, some of these words are very strong, strongly. And you know, whatever they can sort out their own. Okay, mess. but Governor Governor Haley, hold on for a second. Yeah. So there's a scene in the. This was in- an interview she did for people who didn't know where she's kind of strafe Trump pretty. Pretty significantly for There's her. a scene in um, uh, Gladiator with mm-hmm. Russell Crowe. Uh, and my favorite a, movie. There's an incredible uh, Welsh actor who passed away who plays the king. What's his name? Oh, yeah, shit. Yeah, him. That guy. Yeah. Uh, anyways, his son, yeah. uh, Joaquin Phoenix, shows up yeah. after the battle is over. He's he says, bad. Father. He says, Father, did I miss the battle? And the, and the king goes, uh, you've missed the war. Yeah. There is courage is in abundance after the battle. And that's what. That's what Nikki Haley represents. Oh, it's like, wow. you know, you're calling her Joaquin Phoenix. That's well, look, fantastic. for her to show up now after saying that Jared, that Jared Kushner has a special type of genius and I want yeah. to thank the president for his leadership. She is, uh, I mean, I got to give it to her. I think she's a deaf politician, 
But God, talk about talk about jonesing for the mic and the camera in Iowa. Yeah. I think she is she all of a sudden she's decided that the president is bad for America. And it's like, well, you know what? You missed the battle, Nick. Yeah, Miss, Miss I, Haley. You, you missed know the who battle. Actually, let me just say, first of all, it was Richard Harris. He's playing Marcus Aurelius. Richard and, Harris. And thank he, you. Fantastic. Joaquin Phoenix actor. is co- co- Commodus. A really good movie. But let me say, I, I thought Lisa Murkowski's, Murkowski, who has been consistently uh, tough on Trump, uh, released an amazing and her her whole her whole statement, which I I think she's been consistent the whole time she voted against Trump every single time to much to her possible detriment a while back a while back she's she essentially released a he sucks I've said he sucks he's dangerous and if you want a primary come and get me come and get me I love she, I thought it was great. I thought I that was her. great I, I thought that great. was great I yeah. thought she handled it well and it was like. I'm not worried about being primary. If I get primary, I get primary. So what? What do I care? Like I'm I'm good at what I do and I'm doing things for the people of Alaska. So bite me. Like it was it was good. I thought she was I thought that's the real profile and courage in that particular part. And, and unfortunately this and says Romney. And mm-hmm. Romney. Unfortunately this says something about I mean, here's the thing. It's we like we like to personify emotion and movements and it's easy to personify it amongst our elected representatives and go after them. But here's the reality. Mm-hmm. Those Republican senators, the 40 that voted for acquittal mm-hmm. or excuse 43. me, the 43, uh, were raised in American households. They went to American schools. They were elected by Americans. Mm-hmm. This is more, I think, a negative reflection on on America because it, there was a, a member of parliament in Europe that summarized politics perfectly for me. Mm-hmm. And that was, she said, we all know what needs to be done we just don't know how to be reelected after doing what needs to be done. Yeah. And the reality is uh, that Trump and his, and his uh, you know, low budget cruelty mm-hmm. commands a ridiculous uh, power in a, in a primary. Right. And these individuals, it's easy to see, you can, you can empathize where they say, well, I can't do good if I don't get elected. No, I can't. That's an excuse. That's an excuse. Sir. I agree. I agree. I'm, I'm and you'd like to think. Which I'm going to move you along on a topic. Actually, John, okay, uh, Bill Cassidy from Louisiana. I agree with you. I did that too. Was he? He was a. He was in a much more unusual state. He voted against uh, for conviction yeah. and uh, and wrote a great essay about it. And it's like he because had, he's guilty. They're like, why did you vote for yeah, conviction? Yeah. Because he's guilty. Yeah, it was quite good. <laughs> but speaking of which, speaking of which, people taking responsibility and and sort of what other person was Collins, Senator Collins, who has been at cross purposes with the Lincoln Project, which has been imploding this week, um, mm-hmm. the Republican strategist uh, group, which has made amazingly sharp targeted ad against Donald Trump. Progressives argue whether they were effective or not. I think it, it was a good shot in the arm of morale and everything else in any case. And I thought they were wonderful ads, actually. Um, they've come under fire after accusations of young men saying that John Weaver, one of the organization's co-founders, there's several co-founders there, who had left in the summer, uh, sent sexually explicit messages over a long period of time. It's And, and whether this group of people knew about it and did anything about it is and there's they're all fighting with each other there's a woman who was there one of the other founders who said that they knew about it others said they didn't know about it including people we've had on the show uh, uh steve schmidt has left and we didn't have him on the show but rick wilson we've had on the show um and so it's a big mess about reporting of what happened here and then of course there was a big story in the 19th about uh, sort of the workplace which there's a lot of you know, typical political operative language, which was all pretty ugly. Um, 
And at the same time, what you want to talk about is Gina Carano uh, was let go from The Mandalorian. I, you you know more about her. I don't watch The Mandalorian. Um, about some tweets that she did that people conceived was anti-Semitic. I saw one of them and thought it was quite anti-Semitic, actually. Um, uh, but whether you know she's a she's a she's a Trump person and has been quite a Trump supporter. Um, so what do you think about all what's going on here? All the watching of language and not, not just that, but in John Weaver's case, uh, sexual, clear sexual predatory behavior. Well, I think I know more about the Gina Carano story and you know more about the Lincoln Project story. <laughs> so what are your thoughts? You start. What do you think about what's um, going on at the I Lincoln think Project? They, I think I, I'm guessing, I don't know if they knew, but if they did, they should, something serious should happen to them. Yeah. Um, you know, I think these workplaces, things get passed along and I've seen, you know, every workplace has its issues. Let's just say, you know, every workplace has issues. But in this case, it sounds like he was predatory toward these young men, um, was a closeted gay guy, speaking of closets, which I'm in um, right now. Um and that he behaved badly. And when they found out about it, should they're having an internal investigation by an independent investigator, we should find out when they knew about it. And that's, you know, and they, they didn't do anything about it or take action and let him go pretending he had a heart attack, heart condition, which he may have, I believe. Um, I think anybody who sort of looked the other way has should probably step away from the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and the argument between and among the people about the, the way they talk, um, again, badly ma- managed, maybe better managed. I think probably the project is, which collected a lot of money. That there, There's always been allegations that they've sort of self-dealt. They made these ads, and which are very good ads. Let's take it away from that and um, and sort of let the paid each other for them and stuff like that, which has been a long time criticism. But in this case, it's just sort of exposed a workplace that didn't, ha- that was sort of run like hair on fire, which I'm mm-hmm. not, again, I'm also not surprised at. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it, they need to do an, an investigation and then people who knew and didn't do anything about it need to be removed from the project. And if, if the project survives, I don't know about that. Uh, I think that's happened. I think the pro, I, yeah. I don't know, but I think the project's over. I think well, this thing I think is so. Done. There's some people there still. I think it's not gone, but I don't know where they go now. There's no way they haven't been impugned in, in a yeah, way that's significant. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, um, and I liked a lot of what they did, but it, you know, it's, Look, there's, we have a tendency to see all wrong. It's easy to group all wrongdoing into one bucket. And the reality Mm -hmm. is, my understanding is that that John Weaver, while he never, I don't think he's accused of actually um, having physical contact. What he did was hugely inappropriate. And the thing that, the thing that takes it to an entirely different level is a report came out that he was initially communicating, even if the messages weren't inappropriate at the time, but he was grooming someone who was a minor. And the the bottom line is there's jail and then there's a special place in hell for people who, quite frankly, abuse children in any way. And uh, and there's just no getting around it. And this this is unfair, but I think they should have shut down the Penn State football program. And by yeah. the way, it wasn't any of their fault. That was, it, that was uh, Joe. What's his name? Th- I think they should have. I think when when you're when it involves children, and you know, and if you institutionalize serial rape and continue to operate as if nothing's wrong, I don't know the Catholic Church. Yeah. I just think there should be shrapnel that that devastates 
uh, the organization, and there's just no getting well, around it. Well, let's be clear. What happened at Penn State uh, with that coach who was uh, physically abusing? That's an entirely different and, level. I give you and, that. And, and the Catholic Church. Let's just let's, this is something else. This is this is just this is incredibly bad, but not that level. I'm gonna. So uh, I, I just I want to have to sacrifice. I just want, I just I just want to acknowledge a point there because. Yeah, the I, three, I the right. three, the three shouldn't be conflated. And now I'm putting my words back in my mouth. What happened no, to the Lincoln Project? I see your point. My point is, there's a, just a special level of damage, yeah. and what I'll call okay, no, anything, anything involving a minor, do not pass go. Yeah, you're right. It's too bad. The whole thing gets fucking shut down. Mm-hmm. And I'm, quite frankly, I think some of the individuals, the, the the senior level individuals, I don't, I'm not friends with any of them, but I know a couple of them. Mm-hmm. I, I think I don't want to call them innocent victims, but they're they're they also are their careers are going to be damaged because mm-hmm. when shit like this happens, the shrapnel goes everywhere. And I bet they just didn't know how to handle it. It's like, what I don't do we know. do? I don't here? know. I think it's there's more there. I think the story, if you read the story in the 19th and again, I, they were very good reporters there. Um, I think there's more problematic management problems that I, then you could easily understand. Once you read that piece, you understand what happened here. Mm-hmm. That's all. So, but talk about Gina Carano because that's a more comp. That's another complex well, issue. This is. I think this is a tough one. Her tweet mm-hmm. that supposedly put everyone over the edge, and I looked it up today. She wrote or she tweeted, uh, at least according to Wikipedia, Jews mm-hmm. were beaten in the streets, not by Nazi soldiers, but by their neighbors, even by children. Because history is edited, most people today don't realize that to get to that point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jews. How is that any different from hating someone for their political views? I don't, I don't agree with that. I think it is offensive. I think some of the imagery she put out, like you said, was, was very offensive. But uh, the, the, when you're, before you start ruining someone's career, like Gina Carano, raised by a single mother, uh, mm-hmm. took her took her girls basketball team to the state championship was the first female to really put a female face on MMA fighting and mm-hmm. really advance that sport for women she, did, she is a fan in my opinion she's a fantastic actress and mm-hmm. she said something really fucking stupid and mm-hmm. my sense is that we now have an economy or a sub economy that takes shitty takes makes them uber shitty and then we have algorithms that profit off of inciting a mob response to it. And I don't, and Mm -hmm. I also, there's, and I realize this is complex, but there is an orthodoxy that's turned into dogma, uh, in my opinion, among universities and in the media, where if you step outside the lines and you say something stupid, it can ruin your livelihood. And I have a problem with that. Uh, I find Scientology- I I would agree. I would agree. I find Scientology offensive, but I don't think Tom Cruise's life should be ruined. I I don't- Anyways, well, I, let me just say, I think you're right about the one tweet she did. I think it just was obnoxious. Yeah. And really, but lots of people are making Nazi metaphors, let's just right, say. like the, In right. this case, it was obnoxious. There was one that she did that showed, like, there was a guy who was clearly looks Jewish holding diamonds. And there was one that was, it says, all we have to do is stand up and their little game is over. Um, she had several that were, you know, I remember when Donald Trump got in trouble for tweeting that, uh, the thing with the money and the Jewish star with Hillary Clinton, you know, nothing happened to him really. Well, like, but people right. had a, had a big, she was right next to a line on some things. Agreed. And so, you know, I think I, I, again, is it one tweet or is it a behavior pattern kind of thing um, where they don't want to be affiliated with it? You know, I'm not sure. I think, I think one of the things is I would agree with, I think probably she should not have been, 
fired for it, but she also tweeted a couple of things. If you keep looking, the more of them that come out, you're like, oh, that's not good. Uh, you know, it's confusing because but the question is, at what point, at what point do does your job and the corporation that pays you absorb your political views, whether they're yeah. smart, shitty, yeah. or offensive? And yeah. I think it comes back to a similar place, and that is. Mm-hmm. We have lost so much faith in our institutions, and our institutions have been so underfunded and so disparaged that we no longer trust the courts. We no mm-hmm. longer trust even the HR department. We we want we want Kayak, Airbnb, Twitter, and Facebook to punish the president. We want the Twitter mob mm-hmm. to pu- to punish Gina Carano and Disney. And I don't want, I mean, I'm sounding now like a Republican saying I don't want the, there's accountability, there's shaming, I think that's important, and people should be called out. But I, there's something, there's something wrong here. There's something dangerous here. And it's a different flavor, but being a communist in an era where the the Russians had built the bomb, the Russians were coming for us, their enemy, and if you were to say you were a communist in the 50s in this country, that was just very offensive to people, really offensive. And we ruin their careers. And the question is, is that is this that many shades away from that? Are we, I don't know, this, well, this is not, a tough it's one. It's not limited. I mean, they remember they, Disney also let go of James Gunn a while ago because he had a bunch of, you know, jokey jokes about rape culture, I think, or something like that. He, he was, he, he made a lot of jokes about pedophilia and stuff. And Disney, I think they rehired him and hired him. I, in any case, a lot of people have to, and you know, you know what happened in the New York Times with Don McNeil. And I thought, by the way, if you want to read a great, column. Ben Smith in the New York Times mm-hmm. wrote a tough but very fair column on what happened with Don McNeil and interviewed the kids, one of the kids on the uh, trip who actually had a diary, <laughs> a mm-hmm. very smart kid. Um, and I think it was, it, I thought it handled it really well. I thought that if you want to read something, it showed the difficulties on all sides of these issues. And it's not one thing he said, it was other things. And um, I think things are a lot more complex. Plex. And I don't think it was one tweet with this woman. But at the same time, Disney did this with other people um, and some of uh, whom were liberal. So, so it's 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 a real question of it's more like James Gunn. It was not political speech, I believe. It was more other stupid jokes he made before. Um, and and that that's happened. And then Roseanne, as you remember, when she said the thing about uh, uh, they removed her from the Roseanne. I think that was Disney. Sure, it was ABC. Uh, so Ro- it's Roseanne, super- though. But look, at, let's talk about yeah, Roseanne. Yes, okay? so no, that was she that had was, pictures of cookies coming out of an oven yeah, as yeah. Jews, and she was dressed up as Hitler. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's I like, know. okay. And then Kathy Griffin, you know, who, who I who I know well, um, the same thing with her picture with Trump. But, she And and she's quite liberal. So yeah. it's, it's really kind of a very complex situation. I don't know if we have any particular answers to it, uh, but we do have to, like, these companies can do what they want. And I think this is going to continue because people leave but, this trail of information behind them. But I always think it's interesting to say, okay, what is the incendiary here? What is really powering all this? And one, I think it's that we no longer trust our institutions and turn, unfortunately, to Silicon Valley to, to try and punish the president or, mm-hmm. or turn on uh, individuals that we feel. But I still think most of this or a lot of it comes mm-hmm. down to income inequality. And that mm-hmm. is, I think that people are so outraged at the prosperity that we've had the last 30 years without progress, that it has all been crowded mostly towards wealthy older white Americans, Mm -hmm. that there's a general sense of rage. And anything that appears to be the establishment, and the establishment is you're older or you make a lot of money Mm -hmm. or a corporation, there's a lot of rage. And then there's this incredible rage for profit machine 
that 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 moves you into that rage bubble. I think Twitter, Twitter alone has made celebrities in the media more terse and a and a, yeah. a lot ruder. Because yeah. if you come back with a one word dunk on somebody, you get yes. thousands of likes, and Twitter yeah. sees that and then elevates it and goes, "Oh my God, look at this dunk." Terse comeback. So it's taught all of us yep, to yep. look for opportunities, not to expand the dialogue and say, let's learn from this. True. It's it's taught all of us to go boom on everybody. Although sometimes I'm gonna we're gonna get to the next story because we have uh, um, Adam Grant coming soon. But um, let me just say I had a very back great back and forth with a number of people on this um, uh, Codex story that the New York Times had, which had some problems, but uh, but we had a great discussion. I wouldn't say is always like that. I think you could have not everybody agreed, and then one or two people were like, "You're wrong," like and was trying doing the dunking thing, and I was like, "Anyone who wants to actually talk about the complexity of this, I'm happy to." And so I think you can get to really good discussions. It's just you're right, dunking is is wins. But also, I, I can't help it. Right, Communication on these platforms is as yeah. much about who says it as what you've said. Mm -hmm. And you, quite frankly, have a, a, a you can play a very productive role because, quite frankly, you're given more license. Mm -hmm. People, women, people of different sexual orientation, people of color have been wrong for 450 years. And now for, you know, 24 months, whatever you want to call it, older white males show up in a room and they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, I think the conversation, I I think you can say things, quite frankly, that because of your your rigor and your background as a journalist and and your background, that some people would probably the the lines of which they can color out outside mm -hmm. of are, are narrower than they are for you. True, I feel I know I know you think I, I know you think that it's just that. I, I everybody having a voice is going to sort itself out. I do yep. think that's the case. I do, but it does. That's the most hopeful thing I have ever yeah. heard you say. I do think it is because I've had some very, you know, honestly, the minute like the more angry voices come off, the better it gets. I'll be, you know, the more yeah. like donkey ones. Anyway, big stories, speaking of which, about where news is going. Microsoft CEO Brad Smith, who I just recently interviewed, says the Biden administration should follow a controversial Australian proposal that would force tech companies to pay newspapers for content. This is a direct aim at companies like Google and Facebook. The Australian proposal that is now in Parliament will require tech companies to notify publishers of algorithm changes that could affect search rankings. In a blog post, Smith wrote, the United States should not object to a creative Australian proposal that strengthens democracy by requiring tech companies to support a free press. If the proposal becomes law in its current form, Google said it would shut down its search engine in Australia. Facebook has said it would bar Australian users from its social media platforms from sharing links to news articles. Europe has tried imposing similar laws with limited success, and the Trump administration opposed such measures in the United States, and so did the Obama administration, as I recall. So this is a really interesting thing of paying publishers. Obviously, Rupert Murdoch thinks this is dandy down in Australia, but it's been something that's going on for a while, and Brad and I did talk about this issue um, obviously, Microsoft has its own search engine, Bing, which will which would advantage, and they'd be happy and willing to pay uh, publishers. So, what do you think about this? So, um, I absolutely, uh, I think the mechanics need to rework out. I absolutely love this, and I, I will use this as an excuse to talk about how important and relevant I am. Okay. When I was on <laughs> my my first board meeting at yeah. the New York Times, I came in with mm -hmm. analysis that I thought was just incredible. I said, "Okay, I think Google." Mm -hmm. is making 20 to $30 million, crawling our content, and then and running ads against it. And they're trading at 12 times revenue. So I think Google 
our willingness to let Google crawl our, all our gorgeous content is creating somewhere between 500 million and 700 million in enterprise value for them. And as far as I can tell, we're getting somewhere between three and $5 million a year in additional subscription revenue and advertising <laughs> revenue from them. So shitty trade. I'm like, why are we being such fucking idiots so we can stand near the innovation light? Why, why are <laughs> we being, we need to shut off. And I propose this specifically. Let's get together with the Murdochs. Let's get together with Pearson, who owns the FT. Let's get together with the Newhouse family. And let's take Vogue, the FT, the Wall Street Journal, and take all this gorgeous content and put it, well, let's all create like a, an association and then license it to the highest bidder. And there's two bidders. There's Microsoft and Bing, and there's Google. And this content will give them another one to three points of share in a search market that'll get billions of dollars. Instead, <laughs> we're being idiots. We are being yeah. Idiots. And I was absolutely laughed out of the room. So I was talking to Senator Michael Bennett last week, more name dropping about regulation mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. big tech. And I believe that algorithms of amplification should be uh, taxed. And mm -hmm. the, the moment I go back to is in that board dinner at the New York Times, mm -hmm. when after we uh, had presented this analysis and was laughed out of the room for the idea of turning off Google, they're like, no, don't be stupid. We want to be innovators, da, da, da. And then later that day, Bill Keller, I think his name is Bill Keller. Yeah, uh, Bill Keller. Mm -hmm. Who looked like something, out, by the way, out of a 70s Aqua Velva ad. He's like this really handsome <laughs> guy handsome from man. 1974. He's really handsome. Man. I remember just he's sitting there staring at him going, I know he's saying something, but I can't stop thinking about how handsome editor. he is. He was the editor. Anyways, <laughs> but a brilliant guy who like ran the Moscow Bureau for the New York Times. Yeah. And, him. and he had to excuse himself from dinner. You know, I had to leave. What? He was negotiating the release of a hostage held by the Taliban, a journalist, a um, New York Times journalist. I'm like, okay, so we let Google into our vaults to take money, and then our managing editor has to go negotiate the release of a yeah. New York Times journalist. I'm like, fuck this. So yeah. I'd say well, my, my message to Australia is word, my brothers, yeah. tax that shit yeah. and put that money back into great journalism. Yep, I would agree. I think this is coming from, even though some of it's been backed by someone like Rupert Murdoch, who I wouldn't trust, you know, holding my hat. Um, it is, it is, I think it's coming for them. I think paying both the social media tax and also, uh, which I've talked about and you've talked about, and also paying for the content. We're tired of uh, painting your fences. We're tired of, and we don't, I don't think we need them as much as they think, if that makes sense. And so we're tired of painting your fences. That's really what's, what this is saying. And I think it's going to be the case. All right, Scott, let's go on a quick break. And when we get back, we'll be joined by friend of Pivot, podcast host and author, and Scott's personal nemesis, who is better than him, Adam Grant. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Atlassian. One of our customers who produces pizza at a very large scale all across the world. Believe it or not, they use AI to review the quality of the pizzas that are created. That goes through a workflow that scans the images of the pizzas and makes sure they visually look like what they should. So it's pretty cool. That's Sharif Mansour, Atlassian's head of AI. Sharif thinks there's a lot for companies to be excited about on the AI-generated horizon spanning everything from making pizza to producing podcasts like the one you're listening to now. There'll be far more jobs created on the other side of this revolution. Instead of a world of less, Sharif envisions an AI-powered world of more. In everyone's day job, they're moving from doing the thing to often being an architect of the thing. 
It unleashes the potential of every human. And I think we can go from a world where few people have access to a high level of intelligence to a lot more people having access to this information. AI is really giving everyone on the planet more resources to do great things. And I'm very optimistic about that opportunity that lies ahead. Transform teamwork with the power of AI-human collaboration. Start using Atlassian Intelligence for your Atlassian products like Jira and Confluence now. Learn more at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N dot com. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Moving on, we have a friend of Pivot. We have with us Adam Grant. Adam is the author of the just-released New York Times bestseller, Think Again. Obviously, Adam is a thought leader and a thinkfluencer uh, of great repute, and Scott is also a thinkfluencer. So we have two thinkfluencers here. I I am so the pips in this guy's Gladys Knight. Let's just be (laughs) honest. Let's just be honest. How did I get two of the most delightfully disagreeable people together in one podcast. Well, yeah, we, we're one of those things. Again. We're think one again, of those Adam. things. Think again, Adam. Think again. I don't yeah. know why you're here. We anyway, know what let, you're doing. Let, let's start off and then Scott, I'm going to let Scott do most of this interview. Anyway, you talk in your new book about arguing like you're right and listening uh, like you're wrong, which we do all the time. And I think it's the success of our show. Um, but what are some tangible ways? Talk about what you're trying to do in this book. You'd like to see it implemented across news, politics, and, and stuff like this. But talk about the theme of the book and then explain that for me. So the overall idea is that we spend way too much of our time thinking and talking like preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. Mm -hmm. And I think it's weird to me because as an organizational psychologist, I wonder how in the world these jobs started inhabiting my mind when I've never worked in any of these fields. Mm -hmm. Preacher mode is about saying, I've already found the truth and my job is to proselytize it. Prosecutor mode is I'm trying to win an argument, and that means I have to prove you wrong. Mm -hmm. And politician mode is I'm going to tell you what you want to hear in order to get your approval. And my worry is that all three of these mindsets stop us from questioning our opinions, our convictions, and our decisions, because if I'm a preacher or a prosecutor, I'm right, you're wrong. I don't need to rethink anything. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a politician, I might change what I say, but my beliefs deep down stay intact. And I think that's a problem in a rapidly changing world. All right. So so what do we do about this? What, what how could social media algorithms be better at incorporating this mentality into platforms? What do you what what do we do when we're we Scott and I were just talking about things like the arguments of people getting thrown off and being on Twitter, being right, trying to be very right and dunk on people. How do you change it when social media kind of plays into these very human kind of personality traits? I don't know that I have easy solutions, but my starting point is to say it would be great if we had algorithms that encourage people to think and communicate a little bit more like scientists. Mm -hmm. 
where instead of immediately amplifying outrage, we said if people express some degree of uncertainty, if they ask questions instead of just giving answers, if they ask about the evidence that's available on a topic, right, that, that information should immediately be amplified. And I guess if I, were, if I were writing a social media algorithm, I would be fascinated to see what happened if we said everyone's entitled to freedom of speech, but nobody has an immediate right to freedom of megaphone. Mm-hmm. So before, you know, before a tweet, let's say, goes beyond 100 or 200 people, or if it's going to take off into the thousands, maybe we could fact check it at that point or bring in a community of independent experts to weigh in on on whether they think it has validity or not. And I think this is way too complicated at scale, so I have no idea how to do it. But this is the kind of thing I would start to think about. So, Adam, uh, first off, it's it's just so great to uh, have you here. You generally are one of my role models. Uh, you, <laughs> it's the I would, hair. <laughs> yeah, there you go, right? <laughs> the, I have uh, great hair, on the other hand. I just got it cut, but go ahead. We're both jealous, Kara. Okay, all right. Uh, so I, I think right now, I think it's a toss-up between you and uh, Jonathan Haidt in terms of the two academics that are having the most influence on our dialogue and the zeitgeist in America. And Jonathan has written really eloquently about, I don't call it cancel culture, but this notion that to be offended in our society means you're right. And that unfortunately, it's sort of uh, leaked into what used to be a provocative place of evidence and argument, and that is university campuses. And I complain a lot about this, that I feel that I'm just literally always one false move away from being fired on campus and that we have embraced a, a certain dogma, a certain orthodoxy. I'm just very curious to get your views because you write a lot about this. And what you just said, I think it's so powerful about trying to figure out if we have the right algorithms to give content. Freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of reach. Talk about what you're seeing on campus at Penn and your views. I think it's scary. I think there's <laughs> there's a major suppression of not just conservative views, but unpopular views. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've seen groups of students come together to bully classmates who they think are not, you know, on board with the zeitgeist or aren't sufficiently woke. Um, And I think, I don't know, I really like the way that Van Jones describes it when he says, I don't always want you to be psychologically safe. I want you to be psychologically strong. And part of the Mm -hmm. point of higher education is to learn how to reason with arguments that make you uncomfortable. Now, obviously, I don't think that condones hate speech or, you know, that that any groups that are that are targets of, you know, systematic um, (laughs) of attacks, you know, should should be subjected to that. But. I think when people are bringing good faith arguments, when they're actually trying to learn or challenge conventional thinking uh, in order to get closer to the truth as opposed to just to troll, that we ought to listen to those. And I guess to me where, where cancel culture lies is it, it doesn't tolerate a whole lot of dissent. Um, it's just, you know, it's, there's high criticism, but low openness. And I want to live in a university campus and also in a country where we have both openness to dissent and, and quality standards, right? Where we can say people can speak, but we should also challenge them with the best logic and the best evidence we have available. Well, let me challenge you both because I I interviewed the president of Oberlin about this topic just, just this week. And Mm -hmm. one of the things she was saying is why are people always just dunking on college students about this when politicians do it all the time? Mm -hmm. um, Reporters do it all the time. Everyone else, why are we focusing on, on them where they're in a state where they're sort of learning and developing and adults, you know, people who are in the workplace do it all the time. And, you know, the idea of like that you can, like they say they want to talk about dissent and then the minute, 
say Liz Cheney dissents on the right, they dunk on her and then don't say anything about cancel culture. It's just because they don't like what she said. So I, I just think some people just grab, it's sort of like saying fake news all the time to say cancel culture, when sometimes it's about accountability of what you say. Sometimes it's maybe you really shouldn't say that. Like maybe mm-hmm. some things should stop being said. And the other one is that people tend to hide really horrible speech in this, I should say whatever I feel like. I, I experienced that in Silicon Valley, or there should be no consequences to anything. And so how do you square those, that particular circle, essentially? Adam? <laughs> Thank, thanks for putting me on the spot there, Scott. I think I think it's a good question. I think, I don't know, I have a lot of reactions to it. My, my first thought is, you know, there's, everybody likes to quote, what is it, Moynihan on how everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. Mm-hmm. I would modify that a little bit. I think you're entitled to your own opinions if you keep them in your head. But if you choose to express them out loud, then you have a responsibility to back them up with data and with reason. You also have a responsibility to be open to changing your mind if new data or better logic would would come along. And I, I think the reason that I'm comfortable, I'm not dunking on college students here. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm making a case that we're not doing a good job. Um, and I think John Haidt has, has captured this beautifully. Um, we're not doing a good job preparing students 100%. to have thoughtful disagreement. And I think we need, we need to change campus percent. culture, right? Not, not criticize students per se. Scott, you, you, you actually agree? Look, it's not, we, it's not the students that are wrong. It's that we as educators who are supposed to be preparing people for an unjust world and giving them the tools to, in a sober way, present evidence and argument to make it a more just world, we're not preparing them. When, when we teach them that they get virtue points by being part of the Guardians of Gotcha Squad, all we're doing is setting them up for failure. If they just want to watch MSNBC and never go outside, then fine. But we are not preparing them. We're not giving them the tools. We're not giving them the Kevlar. We're not giving it. We're creating the, a generation of princess and the pea. So well, it's not except, their fault. I, it, it's except our fault. Again, I'm going to push back at both of you. I think the right does game these groups of people all the time and they're playing trolls. They're not trying to like, we should say what I want. They want to say the most disturbing and upsetting things to create a troll like situation to, you know, let's let's poke the libs or whatever they want to do. And so I think that's not good faith. They, there's very few people that want to actually have a good faith argument. They want to have an argument. And so they create sort of discord just the way bots do or anything else. And so I don't think someone like President Trump wants to create a dialogue. He just wants to piss people off and create chaos. And so how do you get that difference when I think I, I do I do think the right does like to play games in terms of getting people angry. But take, um, it, it, take it down one level and then okay. I want Adam to come in. Right. Okay, take Trump and comedians who oftentimes right. say offensive, Agreed. provocative things. They don't right. go on campuses anymore. Right. They literally that, just I, they I disappeared. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Adam? I would agree. Go ahead, Adam. Yeah, I, I guess, I don't know. I think it's tricky. I think... I don't know what to do with the, you know, the, <laughs> the national politics version of this. Mm-hmm. It's complicated. I think, though, for the everyday conversations that people are shying away from and not able to have because, oh, well, that hurt my feelings a little bit. I, the place that I, I like to start is to teach my students a couple things. One is you should follow people not just because you agree with their conclusions, mm-hmm. but because you respect the integrity of their thought process, right? You don't, you don't have to be on board with every answer they give if you're impressed by how thorough they are in asking questions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a small step we could all take toward getting out of our filter bubbles and echo chambers. I think the second thing is this, this goes right to the heart of what I do as a social scientist. 
I want to know whether you would accept the results of a study before you know what it shows. So do we consider the methods rigorous? Yes Mm -hmm. or no? And then once the methods are established and agreed upon, we should be open to discussing whatever the data show. It's a little bit for me like taking the the John Rawls veil of ignorance where he asked, would you join a society before knowing your place in it to judge whether it was just? I want to teach my students to judge the rigor of data and logic by asking, would you follow this study even if you hadn't seen the output of it yet? Um, And I think that's a starting point, right? Having a conversation about the conversation, agreeing on the standards of evidence at least, Right. Uh, is is a step toward having a reasonable debate. Except you're assuming good faith. See, I don't assume yeah. good faith. And one of the things, like, look, you guys come from a certain higher group in the caste system, really. Um, I, I remember... I have no idea what you're talking about, Kara. <laughs> I remember when I was... <laughs> Wait, is that the straight white man caste here? Yeah. I'm not saying that because I'm trying to do this from a data point of view. But here's, let me tell you from an experiential <laughs> point of view. When I was coming out, especially when it was very difficult to do so... I could not take another anti-gay thing said at me, even if it was like, yeah. let's argue about it. I was like, that's enough. I'm done with your ridiculous. You can't say those things yeah. anymore. That, that and then they were like, over. and then yeah. they were like, yeah, but Agreed. it's free speech. And I'm like, mm, I don't really care. I don't want to hear your anti-gay stuff. I don't want to hear you tell me about children. I don't want to hear you show me data that didn't actually hold up in the end. Yeah. So that's the problem is which whose data and which data. So so let, let's get to how you do it, though. You have this on your book cover. It's right here. And you have a blue flame thinker, which is the Scott. Galloway's favorite thing to talk about. What are some, I do agree, like I had a great about, uh, what is it, uh, uh, Slate Star, Stark Slate Codex or whatever it is this weekend. And I had yeah. great debates online about it because I could see from all the sides the various things. And I was trying to do that very hard rather than say, you know, because that guy really does create really interesting debates and difficult ones. He does. I, I had a whole debate with him a few years ago online about the Google memo when, yeah. when I skewered it and then he criticized my critique. Mm-hmm. I pointed out a couple places where I thought his response was inconsistent with the evidence. He went right into his blog and edited it right there and said, right. here are places I made mistakes. Right. Like I don't always agree with this guy's conclusions, but wow, I appreciate how right. just how... Um, how bloodless he is. Right, right. He <laughs> how really little is. ego he has attached yes, to his opinions. Yes, he changes, opinions. which I really liked. And then that's one of the things I was talking about. And I and I, I could see completely the criticism of the piece. So talk about what some of the um, what some of the techniques you can do because Scott really needs help in this. <laughs> well, <laughs> we let me, let me just let me give you a running start here, Adam. There's I always when I read stuff try to find one thing that I'm going to hold on to, and one of the the one thing I'm going to hold on to from your book is that flip flopping is changing your view because the mob comes from you, but evolving is recognizing which part of your arguments were shitty and that you've learned and you're evolving. Can you, can you speak to more about that? I thought that was very powerful. Oh, thank you. It's, it's something I really learned from super forecasters. Uh, so there's this super forecaster, Jean-Pierre Bagam, who is arguably the world's best election forecaster based mm-hmm. on his performance in tournaments. And one of the things he does is bef- when he starts to form an opinion, let's say, you know, who's going to win the next presidential election, he makes a list of conditions under which he would change his mind. Mm-hmm. And he does that to keep himself honest, knowing that once his idea becomes part of his identity, he's either going to stick to it or he's going to change when his tribe ends up shifting. Mm-hmm. And he wants to know in advance, okay, what are the criteria that matter here before I have real emotions attached to my beliefs? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we could all do, right? We could all say, the moment I have, I have a view, I should treat that as a hunch or a hypothesis. And I should figure out, well, what would change my mind? And then be open to changing when those data come along or when that situation emerges. Mm-hmm. 
So why don't people change their minds now? Does something happen to our brains? Feels, yeah, it feels like people get paid to double down and it's very unhealthy. No matter how outrageous, the best thing are we've trained people to double down. Or is it because to, we have a voice, everybody has a voice suddenly and they didn't before? Or what is there something about the mediums that are that are actually shifting the brain cells, essentially? I think there might be something to all of the above. I think, you know, psychologists have written for years about the totalitarian ego, mm-hmm. which you know, sort of controls the flow of information to our brains, a little bit like Kim Jong-un would control the press in North Korea. And the, the whole point of having a totalitarian ego is to keep out threatening information, which might signal I'm going to be excluded from my group, which might signal other people are going to think I'm an idiot. And so obviously I don't want to change my mind and put myself at risk for either of those things. I think, though, that, that part of the problem is also cultural. It bothers me a lot that we take consistency as a sign of integrity. Mm -hmm. And we say, well, if you've Mm -hmm. changed your mind on anything, that might mean Mm -hmm. you have no moral principles. No conviction. And Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Scott, you were just touching on this a minute ago. But I I think one of the greatest, by that logic, one of the greatest flip-floppers in human history was Abraham Lincoln, Mm -hmm. who came into the White House convinced that if he abolished slavery, it would tear the union apart. Mm-hmm. And how lucky are we that he changed his mind on that? Mm-hmm. And I think what's so interesting about the Lincoln case is his values didn't shift much, right? He was he was interested from the get-go in trying to end prejudice and eliminate this hateful practice. Mm-hmm. But he shifted his policy as he learned about what might be possible in the country. And I, I think that's, for me, a lesson for all of us is to say, look, it's one thing to stick to your values. That's probably in many situations a good thing. Um, but you should be pretty flexible on the opinions about how to best advance those values. What about like when people shift? I, You know, sometimes when I compliment, say, a Mitt Romney, like when he gives a speech, I'll say this was a really good statement or uh, or Lisa Murkowski. I was just trying to think of sort of right wing stuff with a left wing attack. Um and they were like, well, just remember he did this. And I'm like, yeah, but listen to where he's evolved to. Like, it was a really, and I, I cannot get people off that. Like, and, and it is it is very hard. I don't care, but it, it's very hard to get people to go, yes, he did think the other thing before. But it's like people who used to be against gay rights and are now, you have an anger for them before, but you have to acknowledge their evolvingness. It's very hard now to acknowledge evolving. I, I think it is too, but I think I think there's a version of this where you can ask, okay, would I be open to that evolution if this person belonged to my tribe or was mm-hmm. on my side? Right? Mm-hmm. Barack Obama also evolved on gay yeah. rights. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I don't I'm see the left. Right, but no, no, but I don't see the left attacking right. Obama yeah. for what he used to believe. Right? It's it's just convenient when it's somebody who doesn't share most of your ideological views. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that might be, <laughs> I don't I don't know how productive this is, but. Mm-hmm. One of the things that might be worth thinking about here is we could say, okay, um, we don't really know what the person believed before. We know Mm -hmm. what they said before. And it's possible they were being political then, and now they've moved toward a more scientific stance now. Mm-hmm. It's also possible that they were politicians all along, and now it's become more expedient for them to do the right thing. Either way, it's better that they're doing, trying to do the right thing, whether for the right reason or not right now, than not. And so I'll still count that as progress. Don't you? I, yeah, I, I agree I with you. I love this statement. Think- uh, you know, when the data changes, I change my mind. What do you do? And as we've, uh, when we, we were talking about uh, gay rights, uh, you know, when Dan Quayle said that, said that uh, single mothers, it's the, the children don't have as good positive yeah. outcomes. They immediately stretched it to, well, then gay people shouldn't have children. And the reality is uh, that's what the science, as my understanding has come out, is that actually the most important thing, he was right in the sense that a single parent 
family household like the one I was raised in typically doesn't have as strong an outcomes because there's no zone coverage. You don't have two people. But it doesn't matter the sexual orientation of those two. There's a difference between one and two, but it doesn't matter if it's, you know, who the two are. And we got that data, and I like to think that a lot of people have evolved around it. And there's nothing wrong. When the data changes, I change my mind. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. But you can't get people that. So one of the things you talked about is confidence versus competence. Can you talk? I thought that that's what I really this this chart of yours, like armchair quarterback syndrome, confident humility zone, novice and imposter syndrome. Can you explain that? I I think we're all familiar with an armchair quarterback. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We got a pro bowl here, my man. (laughs) <laughs> it's the Hall for of yourself, Fame, Scott Galloway. It's the Hall of Fame here. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the the overconfidence problem, I think, starts often when people gain a little bit of knowledge or skill. At yeah. least that's what the data tell us. And then their confidence climbs faster than their competence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they start to overestimate how much they know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the opposite is the imposter syndrome, right? Where you're more capable than you think you are. And you walk around with these ongoing thoughts like, well, maybe I'm not as good as everyone thinks I am. And I maybe I don't. Deserve my success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have a we have a former doctoral student, Basima Tufek, who's now in the MIT faculty, who studied these imposter thoughts and found that having them more often does not hurt your performance, whether you're an investment professional or a medical professional. Hmm. And in some cases, it it actually helps your performance. Because in those moments where you feel like an imposter, as long as that doesn't become debilitating, of course, and prevent you from trying, you realize I have something to prove. So you're not complacent. You realize I have something to learn. I want to keep getting better so I can close this gap between where I am right now and where other people think I am. And so you see investment professionals second guess their decisions and go and seek feedback from others. You see medical professionals actually listen to their patients as opposed mm-hmm. to interrupting them mm-hmm. and then give them better care. And I think that when when we have those imposter thoughts, it's worth recognizing, hey, you know what? This might be a moment for confident humility where I can mm-hmm. recognize how little I know and yet have a strong conviction in my capability to learn. Yeah, we oh, know, you, um, you know more, you know no more, but you know no less. It's, it, that's a good way to put it. I like that. Yeah. All right, Scott, may have, I have just one more question. I want to think about, when I was thinking about your book, I was thinking about what happened to Wall Street bets and stuff like that, like this idea of these people being competent to invest versus experts. Everybody has an opinion now, which creates a lot of noise, right? There's a lot of everyone has some sort of thought on every single thing, some of which they don't know what they're talking about, some of which they actually do. Where do you where do you meet when people have not just equal knowledge, but in the case of the investor situation, all these some of these retail investors really do know or do have competence that is not born of their job necessarily, just smart people who do research. Where do we go when we have so much noise to get out the signal um, from this very noisy situation we put ourselves in? I'm not sure. I think the, the place I would start is probably to recognize that we want the wisdom of crowds, but not all crowds are equally wise. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And when you look at why some crowds aren't wise, there are a couple of things that, that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. One is that people are, are trusting their intuition instead of testing their intuition. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've built up, I just think about Kara, intuition is unconscious pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. And I might have recognized some patterns in the past in an old stock market that are no longer relevant to the one I'm looking at today. And if I don't realize that, the very things that have made me a good judge in the past are going to lead me astray. Mm-hmm. Second problem is cognitive entrenchment, where 
you become so deeply steeped in knowledge or experience that you stop questioning assumptions that mm -hmm. need to be challenged. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some fun data on this. You see expert bridge players, for example, if you change the rules a little bit, they actually perform worse than their peers because mm -hmm. they're too stuck to the strategies that have always served them well. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I want to know is, has this person become an expert for a world that no longer exists? Or have they continued yep. updating their knowledge in the face of new information? And I don't have a good benchmark for how to find that out necessarily, but I do like to give people a little test and say, okay, here's your prediction. Now, if we relax the following three parameters, how much would your judgment change? And if they're not willing to budge, then they're probably not learning. Oh, interesting. Someone just said that to me today. Someone was working in 1980s mentality. So it's not, you know, even though they're doing the things that would have worked then, it wouldn't work now. Scott, you get the final So question. Professor Grant, when people come to my office hours, they never want to talk about the domain we teach. They want life advice or career advice is what I find. <sighs> I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even know what advice to give myself for my career. Well, How in the world am I going to help a student? That's what I'm going to ask you because, I mean, you say that, but from an outsider standpoint, it seems to me that you have an outstanding career. You're doing something that you you appear to be enjoying. I know how much fucking cabbage you're making, boss. You are killing it. And you are- Is cabbage a good thing? Cabbage is a good thing. Yes. That's how uh, young people describe cabbage. Benjamins. <laughs> Benjamins, cow-cow money, Adam. Anyways, you are having a lot of influence. You, you, look, you look like you're living your best life professionally. What- what advice would you give, or what, let me, I'll phrase it another way. What two or three things, your fault or not your fault, that changed your professional trajectory? Interesting. I guess I would start, this is, it's such a complicated question. I'm trying to think of a simple answer. I think the- 140 or characters are less, please. <laughs> done. You know what? I can, I can do this in, in probably a third of that. I think the- there's really one piece of advice that I would mm -hmm. give, which is you should listen to the advice you give to others. It's usually the advice you need to take for yourself. Mm -hmm. And if I can elaborate on that, Please. I, I, one of, one of the, the hidden benefits of, of having all these office hours conversations is a lot of students have come for advice over the years. And I've heard myself yeah, give a lot of right. advice and realized how rarely I yeah, take it. Do what I say, not as I do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you actually do as you say, right. uh, not only do you end up probably learning from your own knowledge more right. effectively, you also end up more motivated. There's a bunch of evidence showing that when you give advice to other people, uh, you're persuading yourself to do the things that you're so reluctant to do. So what is the one do. thing you tell them all the time? I, I've actually stopped telling them one thing. Uh, I've regretted giving a lot of bad advice. So what I do now is I ask, why are you here? Are you here because you just want me to give a rubber stamp on your decision right. that you've already yeah. made? Because I'm, I'm happy to do that. Should I go to work that. for Google? That's the one I like. Uh, I, don't waste I, my time. You're I going to work for Google. I best for you. Right. Yeah, good luck. Um, but Or are you here because you're worried there are blind spots in your thinking and you want me to challenge some of your assumptions? And if that's the case, I'm going to argue the opposite. And then once we finish that conversation, yeah. let's see where you stand. That's interesting. I always say that to people. I'm like, you, you get the job. Like someone was going to a newspaper and they, I said, you get the job. How do you feel the next day. And every time they go, not good, I'm like, don't take the job. That's you brought up something. I, I, I apologize. I, I, but this notion of virtue signaling, I think about this a lot because uh, I do it a lot. But uh, there's a train of, uh, there's a line of thinking saying that it's okay because if you get reward out of talking about good things you're doing, it will lead to doing more good things and lead other people to notice that it's, it's good to do good things and then talk about them. Have you given any thought to virtue signaling? 
That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I think about it through, I guess, a complementary lens, which is social proof. Hmm. So you know this well as a marketing mm-hmm. guy, Scott. The, the psychology of social proof tells us that if, if nobody virtue signals, nobody else is going to see virtue in the 100%. signal you're sending. 100%. And so I, this is something I worried about a lot during the the after the George Floyd murders uh, in the summer and the Black Lives Matter protests that followed, um, white people being encouraged to be completely silent. I understand that as a as a temporary symbolic act, but then if white people never speak about racism, everybody is going to look around who's white and say, "This is not my place." Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we we know from the history of social movements that uh, we need we need majority minority alliances in order to to get real attention and action on social change. And so, I think that <laughs> I think that every time we criticize someone for virtue signaling, the first thing we should recognize is we don't always know what they're doing behind the scenes, mm-hmm. and they may not be broadcasting it. Second thing we should do is say, okay, net, is it better that this person says something than nothing in terms of sending a message to all these people who think they don't have the legitimacy or the psychological standing to speak up that, hey, you know what? Racism is not an issue just for black people or people of color. It is an issue for human rights. Yeah, fair point. I have one last question. So sometimes these conversations just do get complicated. So at what point for thinking again, do you walk away from a complicated conversation? What do you think the moments where you just say, no, I'm just not going to continue to think again? I think where most people stop is when somebody says, let's agree to disagree. Like, okay, our relationship is on the line. We don't want to risk it anymore. Let's let's just take this issue off the table permanently. Mm-hmm. I don't stop there anymore. Now, when somebody says that, I say, all right, let's review the conversation. You know, we're, we didn't agree here. And to me, that means as, you know, as intelligent, reasonable people, we did something wrong. So tell me how I could have approached this conversation with more of an open mind or more of a thoughtful argument. And it doesn't, it doesn't usually change the person's mind, but what I'm trying to do is stop arguing to win and start asking questions to learn. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I come out of that discussion then with insights on how to have a better conversation with that person another day or a better conversation with somebody else the same day. And I think that's something we should all be invested in. Oh, wow, Scott, then I should stop saying, Scott, you're wrong. We're gonna go <laughs> No, you should next. still tell Scott when he's wrong. He needs it. We don't want his head to get too big. <laughs> Too late, my brother. I, I do have a Too question late. for you. We, we have right. to wax okay. my ears. We have to wax my ears to fit me in the podcast studio. Too late. Oh my Too god! Late. Please give me. No, no, point. no, no. I, I do have a question. What? Uh, so, Karen, you can jump in on this one too because you sure. know Scott a lot better than I do. I think this is the first time we've ever talked. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Scott, I've, I've enjoyed following your work over the last few years. You've just exploded onto the scene. You're smart. Exploded you're funny, is the operative uh, you're interesting. word. Interesting. <laughs> No, no, no. I mean, you just came out of nowhere and all of a sudden you're yeah, everywhere. Yeah, right? Well, with all, with all respect, my yeah, I worked my ass off for 50 years and now I'm an overnight success. But anyways, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I don't mean to diminish all well, the hard work you did, put in. Well, you just did, Professor Grant. You just did. Well, then probably you deserved <laughs> anyways, it. Go ahead. But, go ahead. Let's no, agree I, to disagree. Go but go ahead. ahead. Let's not. Uh, Question. I, yeah, no, I... I Land sorry, it, sorry. Somebody, somebody, I'll get that. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's my I'm, fault. I'm being long-winded. Go ahead. Yeah, it was your fault. Right. You're right. Okay. All right. Come on, boys. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, somebody sent me an episode the two of you did where, Scott, you said that your career goal was to be the most influential thought leader in the history of business. That's yeah. right, bitch. I was I'm like, really? for you. Just so you know. <laughs> really? And who was I thinking Is- about when I said that? <laughs> who was I thinking about? Oh, my God. Wow. Wait, was that targeting That's right. me? Do you hear my, yes. do you oh, hear yeah. my supple yet well-manicured footsteps behind you, Adam? I am so coming for your <laughs> Wharton ass. 
boom, watch out. I am literally, I am sick of being Scotty Pippen to your Michael Jordan. Not that I feel triggered. Not that I've thought about this. But, dude, I am you minus the intellect and minus the credibility distinct to that. I'm coming wait for minute, your ass. Wait a minute. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. Think oh, wait, wait, are you, Where's plan the question? B, yeah, no, blah, 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 blah. I am coming I, for your I, boss. I, I, ap- I appreciate the backhanded compliment <laughs> yeah, there, God. but I, I do I do have a question, which yeah, is I'm sorry. Go ahead. What? Who cares how much influence you have? Like, what are you oh influencing people gosh. to do? How about a goal that's bigger than Scott Galloway? Oh no! Oh God, this is gonna. I be feel shamed. Now. I just I just wanted to know why. why? Like, what what do you what what impact are you trying to have? Uh, because you could be you could you could be the next Enron. I want right. Uh, simply put, uh, simply put, I want people to respect and admire me. I want to feel loved because in thirty years I'm going to be dead, and it's going to be here in three years. I want to feel loved and relevant. And don't you want people after you're dead to love you because you made business better, not worse? Uh, no, I'm too narcissistic. I want to enjoy while I'm here. I, I think <laughs> that's what I was afraid the answer was. I think once be. you're gone, you're but gone. I, you know what? He I, just, I want my kids. Like, I want my kids to be confident, loving citizens. That's my approach to the future. Beyond that, oh, that beyond I that, could get behind. I want a Range Rover, and I want to be fucking loved. <laughs> no, he does want people to do a better job at business. I he think does. he does too. I just wanted him to say it and he admit won't. it. He will not say because it. He, he, he otherwise, just, if you stop there, Scott, you have a lot I of fans who think that you're making you're making Gordon Gecko cool. New again. older brother. New older brother. Oh, oh Gordon Gecko cool. <laughs> making Gordon oh, Gecko cool that. again. Jesus. Oh, I love Adam came with a knife. That's selling. No, no, I just I just wanted to get to the bottom of this. Adam Grant. <laughs> Former friend of Scott Galloway. Will, Former friend. Can I just say, can I just say, you will never catch up to him. Scott Galloway, you he just think? totally fricasseed Dude, he's, you he's, just he's, now. He like filleted you John- He's Ben Johnson you. on steroids. This, this, this no, guy, no, no, there's no, no, no way I, you're catching I, this guy. All joking aside, I do want to say, I think <laughs> yeah, that oh, you, no. you genuinely comes. care about, be be nice about making me. things better. I, no, I believe you genuinely care about making things better, and I just want you to admit it. Oh, do you, Scott? Have some feels. I, 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 he's in so much pain right now. Look at him. It hurts him. Why? Why is this so hard for you? Adam, look at him. I hate my life less and less every day, and I want, I want, I want that to have a positive impact on you and the rest All of the right. world. All right. I'll take right, that boys. as progress. I'm going to end oh, this. God. It's whatever Who, this is. Kara, is that? Wait, did I'll, he just grow? Two words. Yes, two words. First so. word, adopt. Second no. word, me. Seriously, Adam. How many kids do you have? Can you I just, just say? added another kid. <laughs> I appreciate Adam. I appreciate you doing this, but he will, like a rubber band, return to shape very quickly. I don't so. know. I think we we can keep stretching him until he All changes right, for until him. he breaks. Yeah. Until he breaks. <laughs> anyway, Adam, you are fantastic. Thank you Thank both. You that so was much. fun His and fascinating. It's called Think Again. Adam is the OG he is of Professor thinking. Grant. We really appreciate I'm coming Thank for you, you so Michael much. Jordan. I'm coming <laughs> for you. So Scotty not. Pippen gets so, the ball every once in a while. Scotty Pippen gets the ball every once in a while. No, no. Sorry. There's only one Michael Jordan. Thank you. I'm ready. I just hope I'm not the Washington there Wizards, Michael there Jordan. Thanks, Professor. Icing my knees all day. Well done, Adam. Bye. Thanks, both of you. And Bye. thanks, Rebecca. All right, Scott. I think he bested you. One more quick break. We'll be back for wins and fails. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. 
Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from the Harvard Business Review. You know, there's this idea in business that some people are born to be leaders. You either have it or you don't. But leadership, like any skill, can and should be learned over time. Whether you've climbed to the top of the corporate ladder or are just starting out, you'll find valuable insights at Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is a leading destination for smart management thinking. And on their website, hbr.org, subscriptions are just $10 a month, which gives you unlimited access to the same level of expertise. Things like case studies, newsletters, podcasts, articles written by some of the world's top minds. I use HBR in my research when I do articles or when I'm thinking about what to talk about on Pivot. I find them really interesting. I find them complete. I find them different. And you can find all kinds of industries covered. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. What a bargain. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code PIVOT right now to get 10% off your subscription. Again, save 10% off your HBR subscription. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code PIVOT. Okay, Scott, wins and fails. I feel like, uh, Scott, that uh, Adam won and you lost. You yeah, that's your win and fail. That is my win Win Adam fail. Grant failed oh, Scott Galloway. Scott, what are you doing this for, Scott? Why? Why? Oh, um, the why of Scott. Oh, literally. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. I am a great artist, but I'm like Glenn Campbell great. He's like Elvis great. I'm like Glenn Campbell, cocaine addict, two, three hits, and then boom. All right. Move to your Marina win, Del Rey and have a pathetic life. So what is your wins yeah. and fails? What is your wins and fails? Um, I like my uh, – I think it's really interesting what's going on. I wouldn't know if you call it uh, Bitcoin, mm-hmm. but – Bitcoin's about to hit 50,000 bucks. Yep. I predicted that when it was a 19. Mm-hmm. So I'm just taking, I'm, of course, patting myself yeah, on the back because I'm deeply insecure. Yeah, and one. after talking to Adam Grant, I'm now questioning everything I'm saying. But mm-hmm. As uh, this is what you're going to see. You're going to see, um, so, so far, Square, Tesla, uh, MicroStrategy, and Twitter have announced, um, this is really more of a prediction, that they're converting part of their treasury to Bitcoin. You're about to see um, a couple hundred companies try and, uh, cast themselves under the Bitcoin light and move part of their treasury to Bitcoin. And I actually am revising my prediction. I think Bitcoin's going to hit 100,000. Wow. Um, and also, you know, and again, I'm pumping my own, talking my own book here, but I do believe it. I think Twitter's going to 100 bucks on an announcement from Jack Dorsey involving Bitcoin in the next 60 days. All right. Wow. Oh, okay. So including, and also you're still on the subscription thing. You still think they're going to do it or you think that's a lot of blah, blah? Yes, I think it's a lot of blah, blah, but they'll make slow progress. But they they finally appear to be getting serious about it. Mm-hmm. The, the Even the 
the acquisition of, I think it's called Review, is technically subscription yep. newsletters. But all they need to do, I mean, yeah, literally all they need to do. Yeah, they're offering that with their groups. They're, they're all moving in on That's this right. sort of audio space, which will be, we'll see how many people use it. I, again, the issue is where is everybody gathered and who where do they gather first? And for, there's yeah. a real first mover advantage here. But people do switch these platforms rather significantly. And I think just like interoperability of cable, like streaming, and yeah. you can get any information. You used to have to go to one network. I think you'll be able to operate on several different networks. People just come. Yeah, and also, so disclosure: I own Twitter. I do not own any Bitcoin. Mm. Um, so I just you know, I uh, still do, and I can't find it. I know you can't find it. I love that. It goes to a million. <laughs> I absolutely. I, love I will. That. I will go through every you single. Find I will find it, and then especially you there's and something I will like go on a vacation there's especially there's like fifty billion dollars worth of Bitcoin that can't be I accessed because people have forgotten oh, their passwords. God, I can't passwords. I did that. Anyway, all right, Scott. That was a fascinating show as usual. Kara, come out of the closet. I'm coming out of the closet. I'll coming be back out of the in closet. DC on Thursday. We'll be back for more uh, when we tape on Thursday, but then we'll be back on Friday for more. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit your question for the Pivot Podcast. We love listener questions. The link is also in our show notes. Scott, read us out. Today's show was produced by Rebecca Sinanis. Ernie Entertod engineered this episode. Thanks to Hannah Rosen and Drew Burrows. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or, frankly, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Pass the ball to Scotty. He can take the shot. Pass, this, <laughs> pass the ball to Scotty. I would like to argue that Scott is the Dennis Rodman and not the Scotty Pippen. <laughs> 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 Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how you can transform teamwork with the power of AI at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian.